Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, imagine you're at the Grand Canyon, and you're up on the sidewalk on the upper, on the rim, and you're there with your family, you're stunned, you're amazed, it's beautiful, it's amazing, you're, you're there with your family, so you're being pretty watchful of your family members, just trying to make sure that no one falls off the cliff, and yet you're enjoying this stunning natural scene. And then off to your side, you notice this group of teenage boys, and they're maybe 50 yards from the edge of the cliff or so. And then suddenly one of them breaks away from the group and he's got a blindfold on. And so he's running toward the edge of the cliff. What are you going to do? Well, you might decide, you know, I don't want to judge. <laughs> you know, to him, running in that direction is a fine thing to do. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want him to think I'm some kind of weirdo. I don't, want to be one of, I don't want him to think I'm one of those people who's always butting into other people's business and telling them they're doing something wrong. You know, some kind of narrow-minded Christian, that kind of thing. So I'll just let him do his thing. You know, he's doing his thing, I'm doing mine. Mine's kind of an on top of the canyon thing, his is a different thing. <laughs> you would never do that. You would do all that you could to put yourself in front of him or scream and have someone else put their, put their self in front of them. You would act. You would respond. And the reason you would do that is because you know that gravity and things like cliffs are no respecter of persons. No matter what you think about a cliff or how you feel about gravity, it wins every time. It's an objective fact, an immovable objective fact. And he will die if he, if he jumps off that cliff the way he's headed he will die. And so you would do all that you could to put yourself in front of him. And in some ways, that's what we're doing with evangelism. The world is full of people who are blindfolded and running toward the edge of a cliff they don't even believe is there. And if you scream at them and convince them and give them all kinds of evidence, oftentimes they still don't believe the cliff is there. And with the blindfold on, they're still running toward the edge of a cliff. And all we're doing with evangelism is doing whatever we can say and whatever we can do to make it so that fewer people jump off that cliff. So for the next four weeks, that's what we're going to be thinking about. We're going to be thinking about evangelism. And we're going to use these, these uh, five verses at the end of the book of Colossians, which are some of, the, um, some of the clearest verses, actually, when it comes to evangelism in the New Testament for the normal person, you know, someone who's not an apostle or called as a, an office-holding evangelist, but just the normal Christian uh, the normal man, woman, and child in a church, in, in a church like Colossae, what does the Bible have to say to them? Well, th this passage is excellent. So there's a lot, as you'll see, there's a lot here. Now, why evangelism? Well, in some ways, my opening illustration makes it obvious because it's a life and death matter. 
People are running toward the edge of the cliff and we want them not to do that. We want to save them. But at a practical level, why evangelism now, you know, this month? Uh, it's because every, every month or every September at the start of our church year, we, we tend to take three or four weeks to think about something related to our identity as a church. You know, what are we uniquely as a church? You know, it could be our core values. You know, sound doctrine, we're spirit-filled, we're committed to being spirit-filled. Committed to relationships, we're committed to spiritual growth, and we believe that growing in those things will result in mission. So one of those four things. So a year ago, we did spiritual growth. That was our focus. Could be our vision. Our vision has you know, three things attached to it, three, three great loves. So this is what we want to be when we grow up as a church and as Christians. We want to love God, we want to love our neighbor, and we want to love one another well. So those three loves are the target. That's where, we're, that's where we want to be going to as a church. And this year, as we, as elders, were praying uh, through the year, thinking about the year, love your neighbor was the, the theme that bubbled up. So we want to hit that in this September series. And within that broad effort, we want to think about evangelism. There's no greater way to love your neighbor than to evangelize your neighbor. And so that's why evangelism this year. That's why now. So we're looking here at the book of Colossians, which is a, a uh, a letter that Paul wrote from a Roman prison. In fact, this is the imprisonment that's described at the end of the book of Acts, the last chapter in Acts, Acts 28. There's a two-year house arrest that he experiences, and it's in that house arrest that he writes the book of Colossians. He also writes Ephesians and Philippians and Philemon uh, while he's in prison. And if you read those books, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, especially at the end of those letters, you see a lot of overlap of the people mentioned and the situations mentioned. Now, Paul never visited Colossae, which is the, the Colossians is written to the, city, the Christians who are in the city of Colossae. So he never visited that city that we know of. He traveled to cities very close. So cities like Ephesus and Pisidian Antioch, those are cities pretty close to Colossae. And then he also traveled, there's a Roman road, there's their kind of main east-west thoroughfares and north-south thoroughfares, and those traveled pretty close to Colossae. But as far as we know, he never visited that city. The church was planted by a man named Epaphras. So we learned that in chapter 1. And he's likely uh, one of the converts. So when Paul was in Ephesus, it says that all Asia heard the gospel through him and through the ministry that happened there. He was there for several years. And Asia at that time, you know, is, West, is what is now Western Turkey. So it's, don't think of the, you know, the continent of Asia today. You know, it's Western Turkey, those cities in that area. So during his years in Ephesus, all of Asia heard the gospel. And so it seems like Epaphras was one of those guys who heard the gospel, got converted, and he went back to his hometown of Colossae. And he preached Christ. People got saved. The church was planted. So Colossians is written to address uh, concerns that are in that church. And like Paul does so often, he opens with a lot of theology and then he transitions to Christian living, practical Christian living. In the, the opening theology section, he focuses on the doctrine of Christ. And he gives some of the most exalted language about Jesus in the New Testament. So if you want a, a greater view of Christ, read Colossians 1 and 2 much rich teaching. But then he transitions to Christian living in chapter three. You know, anger, purity, relationships, marriage, parenting, masters and slaves, all of those things are, are, are focal points for him in that section. Uh, but if you want a kind of a catch-all, what is, what is the great theme that he wants you to imbibe in all of your relationships and behaviors and, and uh, your occupations, it would be this. This is from chapter three, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, and, what, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do 
everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you say, whatever you do, whatever you think, all of your actions and reactions, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. But as he keeps going, he gets to the end of the, Christian, the practical Christian living section and he makes a transition. It goes from inward, you know, inside of us or inside the church, to outward. How we treat outsiders, those who are outside the church. And that's where we have this passage on evangelism. So we're going to hit four topics from these verses. Prayer is today. Relationships is next week. Answering each person. And we'll think about the place of, of evidence as, as we answer each person. And then clarity. Paul prays that I may make it clear. So we'll think about clarity in our gospel presentations. And, Paul, and John's going to use the Romans Road approach in that sermon. Now it's fitting that Paul and us would begin with prayer when, when you're thinking about evangelism because nothing so exposes our need for God as evangelism. When we think about the other person, we are, we are instantly inspired to pray. We think of the, the number of hurdles that person has to the gospel. And then we think of ourselves and how weak we are as vessels to preach this, this message, this mystery, and we're instantly provoked to pray. So how fitting that as we start this series, we would, we would start with prayer. So this is a call to prayer. Number one, we'll think about how we need to pray. So aspects of, of what the prayers are that we lift up. How we need to pray. And then two is why we need to pray. How we need to pray and then why we need to pray. So let's pray. Father, we pray throughout these next weeks that you would... You would place specific people on our hearts and minds, uh, people who need you, who need to be reconciled to you through Christ. And we pray that you would just give us more faithful, urgent, desperate prayers on their behalf. Uh, We pray that some people who are not currently on our prayer list would make it to our prayer lists. And for those people who are on our prayer list already and have been maybe for decades, we pray that you would just give us more fervent, faith-filled, zealous prayers for them. We pray that the result of these prayers would be the conversion of many of these people, Lord. We pray that for the the hundreds of people that that represents, that there would be conversions. Do a good work, Lord, just as you saved us at a specific moment, at a specific time, in a specific place, through specific means. We pray that you would save others through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Point one, how we need to pray, how we need to pray. So Paul gives us here three things that should describe our prayers, and these are all in verse two. So continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So the first thing about our prayers for the lost, I mean, prayers in general, yes, but especially prayers for the lost, the first thing is that it should be constant, constant prayers. He prays that we would, be, we would continue steadfastly in prayer. There's, a, there's an aspect of being devoted to it, continuing in it. You know, elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says to pray without ceasing. It's that same idea. Continue steadfastly. Pray and don't give up praying. And when it comes to praying for the lost, this makes good sense. You know, sometimes as you're just living life with others, perhaps a neighbor, perhaps a relative, it can be a lot of years before that conversion happens, if it happens. But it can be a lot of years sometimes. John Flavel was a 17th century pastor who preached a sermon in Dartmouth, England. 
And there was a farmer named Luke Shorts who heard that sermon and gave no response. But 85 years later, now he lived a long time, obviously, but 85 years later, so this farmer's alone in his fields and he's just thinking back over his life. And then suddenly in that field by himself, the words of that John Flavel sermon came back to him. And he realized he didn't want to die with the curse of God upon him. So he kept thinking and kept reflecting, and he was converted, converted to Christ. Now that's an illustration not of John Flavel praying for him for 85 years. We have no idea whether he did or not. But it is an illustration of how long it takes sometimes before your moment of evangelism and then God's, God's moment of salvation. It can be a long time. So we pray, and we don't stop praying. And I know many of you have testimonies of that. You prayed for 20 years for a child who was lost or for a parent who was lost, and then God answered that prayer. You wish it only took 20 minutes, but it took 20 years in God's providence. We pray, and we don't stop praying. So we want to continue steadfast in prayer. And then the second, Paul says, being watchful Being watchful in prayer. Being watchful. That's an interesting way to think of it. Being watchful. Now, this this being watchful sometimes is is stay awake or be alert. And there's obviously a practical side to that. When you pray, don't fall asleep. That hurts your prayer life if you just fall asleep during your prayers. So, yes, stay awake. But stay awake in the Bible often has this dual meaning. It doesn't just mean physically stay awake. It often means be awake Spiritually, emotionally, be alert, mentally alert, sober-minded, clear-headed. So Jesus in Matthew 24 uses it in this way. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, he's not telling the disciples, don't sleep. I want you to, (laughs) to take all the caffeine pills you can. Don't sleep until the return of Christ. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Mentally, spiritually, emotionally, stay awake, stay alert, be on your guard. You don't know when the Lord is coming. So we want to be watchful because we don't know the day in which we live. This could be the last day. And so we want to be watchful. As we want to be watchful because we live in dangerous times. Christ has won the victory, and that's good news, but the battle rages on. It could be for a few more days. It could be a few more centuries. We don't know. We don't know how long this era is going to last. But there is an enemy, and this is a battle. And so we want to be watchful. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so we want to be watchful in our prayers, being aware of the dangerous situation, the dangerous times in which we live. But then third, Paul says to be thankful. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So we're steadfast. We're not giving up. We're watchful because these are dangerous times, but we're also thankful. So we are aware of the dangerous times in which we live. We are aware of a devil who's prowling around like a lion. We are aware that this, is, this could be a, long, a long-term prayer Uh, a prayer concern, and yet we're also aware and not losing sight of God's goodness in the process. And so we're thankful. We're thankful in it. He has been good to us. 
if you are his child, his goodness to you is a thousand times greater than any hardship you will ever face. And, and one of the key reasons that's true is because whatever hardship you're facing, it will end. But his goodness to you will never end. And, his, and the hardship you're experiencing could end very soon. But his goodness to you will never end. I mean, I said a thousand times, but it's, it's infinite, isn't it? His, his goodness to you is infinitely times greater than the hardship you're experiencing. So there's always reason to be thankful. Thankful for his past grace, thankful for his present grace, thankful for his future grace, as John Piper calls it. We're thankful because we're not losing sight of that grace, which is perpetual, continual, and unending. And so in our prayers for the lost, we're still thankful. We're urgent, we're desperate, and yet we're also thankful. We're not losing faith, losing heart along the way. So those are three things about how we need to pray. But then why? And in some ways it's obvious, and, and yet this is one of those places where you want to just slow down, pay attention. How exactly does Paul tell you here why I need to pray? Because he has other passages where he gives different reasons for why we need to pray. And those are also important and wonderful to look at and reflect on. But here he gives us two specific reasons about why we need to pray. This is in verse 3 and 4. So as you're continuing steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So he's asking for prayer for two particular reasons. The first reason is that God would prepare the way for the gospel. So he says, God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now in prison, he can preach the gospel. If you read the end of Acts, read the end of Acts in Acts 28, he's preaching Christ within house arrest. It's a, it's a looser house arrest. It's not a restrictive uh, prison situation. So in prison, he can preach. But obviously, he wants more open doors than just that, being able to preach from within the prison. So it's a prayer for God to remove barriers for evangelism so that evangelism can happen. You know, that image of an open door, of an opening of a door. You know, if the door's closed, the gospel can't get in. If the door's open, the gospel can get in. The evangelist and the gospel can get in. And we'll see that it has more meaning besides just that. So there's a practical side to this and in a, in a deeper side. So at a practical level, evangelism requires an opportunity. You need an opportunity with that person before you can share the gospel. There, there are plenty of times where you've, you've prepared well for what you're going to say. You've anticipated their responses. You've prepared your heart so you don't go in defensive and angry. You love this person and you want that to be a, you know, how you lead the conversation. And then the person calls and says they have a flat tire. They can't, make, they can't make it. Or for they got sick that morning. Or so, for whatever reason, the, the, the conversation you, you prepared for simply can't happen. So the door is closed, at least temporarily, but the door is closed. Or you, you know, kind of in a bigger scale, you might feel called to a specific country. You've spent a lot of money, you've done a lot of research, you've invested a lot of time, and then there's a, a snag with your passport. You can't leave the country. The door is closed, at least for a while. So for evangelism to happen, we really do need God to open doors at a very practical level. 
There's other closed doors that can happen. So we read in the Bible about the way that the devil can intervene sometimes. And obviously the devil can use things like passport snags and things like that. But in Thessalonians, we read this. Paul has a desire to return to the Thessalonians, but he speaks about the opposition of the devil. He says, Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't elaborate on the practical or spiritual ways in which Satan hindered them, but Satan hindered them. And so we need God to break down that door so that we can bring the gospel. But the most, probably the most pernicious and difficult door to open is the door inside a person. It's in their heart. We need that door opened. And that's a door only God can open. So without God's work on a heart, that heart is closed to the gospel. So we need the Holy Spirit to go before us to work on that heart and make it receptive to the gospel. A lot of places in Jesus' teaching where he reminds us of this fact, but John 6 uh, has one of the most vivid. So talking to people who are, who are a mixed group where some are resisting and some are not resisting, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I mean, no one is quite a, quite a statement. No one. No one can. Not just no one wants to, which is also true, but no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Father drawing someone is required before that gospel can bear fruit in a person's heart. But God does open hearts. He opens the door of people's hearts so that they are receptive to the gospel. So in Lydia's case, in Acts 16, we see that. So one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She responded and she became one of the great examples of a fruitful Christian in the New Testament. The Lord opened her heart. Paul could have preached a hundred hours to Lydia and it would accomplish nothing. But as soon as the Lord opened her heart, well, she was able to pay attention and did receive, and did receive, what, uh, receive the word that Paul spoke. And she was converted. Mark Dever, in his book on evangelism, which is excellent, encourages prayer. Uh, and this is one of the reasons he gives, the reasons that we're talking about here. God, we need God's work to go before us. So he says, remember the importance of prayer in, in your evangelism. When Jonah was saved from the fish, he said, salvation comes from the Lord. If the Bible teaches us that salvation is the work of God, then surely we should ask him to work among those we evangelize. Jesus did. His prayer in John 17 was for those who would believe in him through the disciples preaching and witnessing. And God answered that prayer. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If this is God's work, we should ask him to do it. So that's the first reason we pray. We pray because we need God to open the door. And then the second, we pray, and this is now from, from our side of things. We pray because we need to make the gospel clear to those we're talking to. Paul says, pray that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So, and, and this is one of those places where if the apostle Paul is asking for clarity, well, you and I need clarity. I'm, 
you know, I, I speak for a living, right? Or at least that's one of the things I do for a living. I speak, and it's, it's amazing how unclear I can be sometimes. And in conversations and in a public context like this, there are just, there are regularly Mondays where Anne is thinking or asking, what, what did you mean by that? That was really not clear what you said there. How much, and the Apostle Paul was no different. How much more do we need God for each one of us to help us make it clear in the way that we ought to speak? Now, he refers to the gospel here as the mystery of Christ. So that's a tip-off that what we're talking about is mysterious. It's a mystery that needs to be unpacked, developed, explained to people. Now, by what Paul means at a, at a technical level, it's not, uh, you know, it's like a, a mystery novel where you have to work really hard for several hundred pages, and at the very end, there's this, you know, surprise moment. Ah, this is, this is, the, this is the person who killed that woman. It's, it has to do with revelation. It was something that was not revealed, and then it was revealed uh, by the Lord. Nobody, nobody figured this out. It was revealed. And so we're revealing something uh, that was revealed, or we're speaking something that was revealed by the Lord. He calls it that, a mystery. And the things that we're talking about, it's, it's, it's kind of obvious that we need clarity. You're talking about the character of God and the nature of creation. Just what is this creation? We need clarity on that. What is the great problem all people have? The problem of sin. How did it get here? And then what's the remedy for that problem in Jesus? And how does a guy who lived 2,000 year, years ago have anything to do with my sin today? How can that possibly be the solution to my problem? And then there's this response required. I need to believe in him and repent. I need to follow him as my Lord and Savior. Well, unless God is working on a heart, all of that is, is just baffling. These aren't obvious things. And, and, and the, in some ways, the longer you go as a Christian, the more trouble you get into because there's more words you understand that you used to not understand at all. Words like justification or condemnation. We talk about the blood of Christ all the time. What are these things? You know, if you're not a Christian, what in the world are these things? So you might, you might you know, set out to share your good news, and this, this might be a, a, a way that you summarize it to somebody. I think we have this on a quote. So without forgiveness, you're eternally condemned. But through the blood of Christ, you can be justified through faith and forever united to him. Now, if I was going to summarize the gospel, I wouldn't do it that way, but these are just words to illustrate this point. There's just a lot of words here that aren't going to make sense unless you, you've been taught a lot of other things. Eternally condemned. What is, what is that about? Sounds bad, I get that, There's, that's, that's obvious, but eternally condemned, what is that? And again, the blood of Christ is a phrase that we use commonly, and it, it, it's a very precious phrase, and we should use it. It's a very specific, helpful phrase. But when you get outside the church, it's very mysterious, it's confusing. You know, the older, the first century church, one of the slanders against the church was that we were all cannibals, because we regularly ate the blood of Christ, and we ate his body as part of our worship service. The blood of Christ is mysterious. And then words like justified, being declared righteous by faith and not by works. Precious, wonderful truth, but justification is a strange word in, in our world. And, you know, 
being united to Christ. What, what, is, what is that? Now, that, that is a true statement, and it is good news. It is, so in that sense, it is the gospel. But you can see what I'm saying. It needs, it needs a lot of help for that to be clear to somebody who's, who doesn't have a good advanced knowledge of Christianity. You know, in Guatemala, when we were, uh, went to the first church service on that, on that first Sunday, Harold's preaching, preaching on Revelation 2 and 3, and from what I understand, it was very clear and very helpful, but not to me. You know, I knew about every 20th or 30th word he said, all those other words were too advanced for me. His Spanish was way more advanced than my Spanish, in other words. And sometimes, as we're sharing the gospel, it can be like that. The, our, our Christian vocabulary is way more advanced than the person we're talking to. And so sometimes, a lot of the effort we have is in just dumbing it. I don't, I don't mean dumbing it down in a condescending way, but just in a, in a very practical way, using simpler words to, con, to convey simpler concepts to get at the same idea. Still, we still can't compromise the content. It has to be the actual gospel. Christ died for our sins is the actual gospel. So we just have to find ways to make that clear to someone. So we need grace to be clear. We need grace for, for God to open the door, and we need grace to be clear. And, this, and these two things are related. You know, if, someone's, if the door of someone's heart, you know, as it were, is closed, it doesn't matter how perfect your gospel presentation is, how kind you are, how non-judgmental you are, how compassionate and gracious and patient you are as a person, how long you worked to build the relationship to get to this moment. None of those things matter if the door of their heart is closed to the gospel. It will be, it will be just like throwing sand at them. But if the door of their heart is open, it's amazing what kind of gospels convert people. I don't know what kind of gospel converted you. Mine was a very imperfect gospel. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure for many of us that was true. Uh, a very imperfect gospel, that, almost a caricature of the true gospel, and yet God used it, this little nugget of gospel truth, and we were converted. And then we learned the rest of the gospel. It was filled out over time and over years in the days, of head, the days ahead. So, we, the, so the two work together, God opening, that, opening the heart and us being clear. So how we need to pray, constant, watchful, thankful, why we need to pray. We need to pray for God to open doors. We need to pray so that we might be clear. So as you've already heard, excellent opportunity tonight to apply this. So we're going we're gonna to pray. We're going we're gonna to gather as a church, those who are able, and we're going we're gonna to pray. And we're going to pray that God would open doors for the gospel. And we're going to pray that God would help us to be clear in our gospel presentations. That God would provide opportunities for us. And we're going to and so we sprinkle those prayers around uh, the city, the community of Apex. For those who stay in, in, this, uh, in the auditorium during that time of prayer, you, you can pray for your own communities back where you are. Some book recommendations. Maybe this, for you, is going to be a, a kind of an excuse to, to be refreshed and encouraged and challenged on the topic of evangelism. So I'm going to give you three. Uh, the first one because uh, I pulled from it a good bit for this sermon. Uh, this is Mark Dever's The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. It's really great. It's a great combination of clear content on the gospel and also some just great historical testimonies on evangelism. So The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. I'm pretty sure we have all these in the, in the Resource Center. Uh, the second one, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. 
Or, you know, maybe the subtitle could be something like, why Calvinists really do, really do believe in evangelism or something like that. Evangelism and the sovereignty of God. Packer does a great job of taking those two profound topics and bringing them together in in just wonderful ways. Um, He doesn't compromise on sovereignty, and he doesn't compromise on the, uh, the need to evangelize, our mandate to evangelize. And then the third book, you know, nice and short, small, these, these, these small um, uh, nine marks books, these are, these are well done. So this is Max Stiles, uh, and it's just called Evangelism. Uh, how the whole church speaks of Jesus. How the whole church speaks of Jesus. And that is one of the, the themes of this book, is, is thinking of evangelism not just in a, in, a, in a you way. You know, I'm the evangelist, I'm trying to witness to this lost person, it's, and it's kind of just... Uh, me and him, so, so I'm going to come up with arguments and that kind of thing. Uh, but actually, Max Stiles broadens our understanding of evangelism. He doesn't compromise what evangelism actually is, but he just, he just presents it in the context of a church body like this. In a church body like this, there are people who are very good at those kind of gospel conversations. It's amazing how quickly they can get to the gospel and how directly they can speak about Christ and his death and, and his death as an answer for their problem of sin. And others, others of us, including myself, are, are just not as good at that. It takes a long time. Sometimes we never get there. And yet we can do other things as a church. We can, we can cook. We can bake. We can fix their car. We can come alongside them in a time of sickness or need or death. And we can be the church in action, the body of Christ in action. And that total effort is oftentimes how someone gets saved. It's rarely a single conversation by a single person, but oftentimes it's a whole string of things that that converge as the church does its thing. So Max Stiles on evangelism presents that really, really, really well. I'm going to close here with a story on evangelism. In some ways, it kind of piggybacks on our opening illustration about running to the edge of a cliff. So John Harper was, was born in Scotland and he became a Christian as a teenager. He began to do street evangelism as a 17-year-old and eventually became a pastor. His effectiveness in Scotland became well-known, so Moody Church in Chicago invited him to come and speak. It went well, so they invited him back. Uh, by that point, his wife had died, uh, but he wanted to come, and so he, he bought tickets for he and his daughter. Nana is her name. So Nana died in 1986, and she's one of the reasons we know this story. Uh, but she tells the story of that journey uh, with she and her father. So her father wakes her up a few nights into the journey and said that the, strict, uh, sorry, the ship had struck an iceberg. And so a ship was coming to save them, but just as a precaution in the meantime, uh, he said to her that she should get in one of the life co- lifeboats, sorry, lifeboats as a precaution. And the ship, of course, was the Titanic, and no boat came to save them in time anyway. Uh, But Nana was rescued that night. Unfortunately, not her father. And yet there was a prayer meeting in in Hamilton, Ontario, in Canada, some months later, where another Scotsman stood up and he gave gave this testimony, gave his own testimony. So he too was on the Titanic. He's in the frigid waters clinging to a piece of debris and a wave brought another man his way who was this man, John Harper. John Harper was holding onto a piece of debris, and Harper said, man, are you saved? It's an ironic question to ask, in, in floating in, in, in those freezing waters, right? Man, are you saved? And, but the guy knew what he was talking about. He said, no, I am not, the man replied. Harper shouted back, believe on the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved. So the waves take, 
John Harper away, but then they bring him back again. And so John Harper asked him, are you saved now? (laughs) No, the man answered. Harper said again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And at that point, Harper actually died, sank into the waters and died. But the man testified that he got saved. At that moment, floating in the icy Atlantic, he trusted Christ as a savior. And he he went on to testify, I am John Harper's last convert. So this man who had given his life to preaching Christ, helping others as much as he could as as a pastor and Christian, I am John Harper's last convert. So may God, may God open doors for the gospel. May God give us clarity to share that gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the remedy provided for sinners to be saved. Lord, our sin is so dark, so corrupt, so perverted, so rebellious, so wretched in comparison to your holiness, how much we all, every one of us, deserve to suffer in the fires of hell. And yet you, Lord, in your grace and in your mercy and in your love have provided a remedy in Jesus Christ so that by us simply believing in him, we can be saved. Lord, you could easily have said, simply be perfect and you will be saved. Which in one sense is true. And yet, we are sinners immersed in our sin. We can't be perfect. And so you provided Christ so that we might believe on him and be saved. So we pray, Lord, that you would just open our eyes to those around us. Open our eyes once again. Uh, We know that this is a, a, a conviction that comes and goes in our lives, but we do pray that you would open our eyes once again to those around us who are lost, who are blindfolded and running toward a cliff they don't even believe is there. We pray that you would save them, Lord. That you would give us evangelistic opportunities with some of these people. And that when we have those opportunities, you would give us the clarity we need to share Christ clearly. And until that point or after that point, we pray that you would give us steadfastness in prayer. Help us to be steadfast, Lord. We can't be steadfast for every person in our life. And so, Lord, would you bring those two or three or four people that you really want us to have on our prayer list and not, not lose them from our prayer list. Who are those several people that we need to pray for and keep on praying for until there's absolutely no hope. We pray for this series, Lord, to result in gospel conversations and especially conversions. We pray it would result in conversions. Do your good work. Do your good work in, these, in this series and in this church, Lord. We pray that you would bless tonight's gathering and bless the sermons in the following weeks. And we do pray that Jesus, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior, we pray that his name would be exalted and that you would be glorified, O Father. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.